Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lamb, and today we have another episode of Toxicologist vs. the Internet with an excellent guest, Dr. Joshua Trebach, a hilarious Twitter medical educator, a New York City emergency physician, and a soon-to-be freshly minted medical toxicologist. We have an absolute blast on this show running through our toxic differentials with some fishy cases of poisoning, and diving into questions from the internet. We cover topics like, can medications become harmful after they expire? How exactly should you treat that headache with alcohol use? And how much THC is too much THC? It's a great episode, and I want to dive right in. But before we start, our standard disclaimers. We're going to be answering questions on the internet from people who may be trying to use drugs for the wrong reasons. Anyone using illicit drugs is exposing themselves to risks of potential contaminants, wide dose fluctuations, and toxicities of the drug itself. While this gives us a medium to explore toxicologic concepts, we are not advocating for anyone to use illicit drugs. If you are struggling with substance use, call 1-800-662-4357 to access the SAMHSA free helpline and get the care you deserve. Second, we're going to be talking about real fatalities, and while this allows us to discuss a lot of great learning points, some of these were intentional fatalities. If you or a loved one are struggling with thoughts of suicide, someone's there to listen. 1-800-273-8255 is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Please call. Finally, even though we're going to be discussing medical management, treatment, and diagnosis, this podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and we are not providing medical advice. If you think you're being poisoned or you have a general healthcare question, call your primary care provider or reach out to your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. Now, let's get on with the show. Everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And today we have a very special episode of Toxicologist vs. the Internet with our guest, Dr. Joshua Trebach, MD, an emergency physician in New York City and a soon-to-be board-certified medical toxicologist in Iowa. Welcome to the show, Dr. Trebach. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Um, how are you, man? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for joining. Yeah, of course. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll give a little bit of background on you for our listeners. Dr. Trebuck finished his medical school and medical residency training at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, where he did his emergency medicine residency. He then went on to complete a two-year medical toxicology fellowship to the New York City Poison Control Center. And we have basically a freshly to-be-minted toxicologist on our hands on the show today mm-hmm. the most up-to-date on all topics <laughs> yeah yeah we just had our like unofficial graduation um like the other day but i still have like call left so it feels weird i don't know uh, yeah everyone says do graduate and i'm like kind of i mean <laughs> so i'm going cross country to iowa so yeah um, that's exciting be, yeah i'm gonna be a midwest boy you got the plaid on already so. yeah i know right um, i was like uh, we'll see. We're just, it's going to be like a 20 hour car ride. And so I'm um, getting a good playlist for that. Um, <laughs> is it music or is it 
audiobook uh, I, it's 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 currently just music i just like sing until i get tired so <laughs> it's probably not good when you're driving well well thank you so much for joining i really appreciate <laughs> of course of course like i said it's a a long-time listener, big-time fan. Happy to be here. Oh, well, thank you. I believe I actually first encountered you when you were doing a... So I'm the chair of the acute and intensive care section of this toxicology organization. We do a webinar every year. And you did an amazing job on uh, assessing the QTC interval in a toxicology patient. And I remember... You were talking about two different ways to assess the QTC interval in an overdose. Mm-hmm. And you made a reference to one was Team Edward and the other was Team Jacob, I believe. Mm. Yeah, I, said, I don't I don't think anyone remembers that. So no, 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 no. <laughs> after I saw that, I was like, yeah, I need to I need to bring them up. So, so. You know, uh, yeah. Um, I don't confirm or deny that statement. Um, but uh <laughs> yes, I remember that very clearly. It was one of my one of my finer moments. And uh, you also have a wonderful and delightfully educational Twitter feed. I believe it is. What Actually, can you, so I don't mess it up. Can you give me your Twitter handle? Uh, my Twitter handle is at J, the letter J, and then my last name, Treebuck. So at J Treebuck. At J Treebuck. Well, that was really easy. Okay. Yeah, and- it's pretty, pretty intuitive. No, it's, it's, it's my name. <laughs> yes. So you frequently post toxicology murder mysteries which are really fun. It's kind of like what we're going to do today, you know, where we, we kind of try to solve a case based mm-hmm. on the clinical presentation. Uh, but yours have far funnier memes as well as scenarios that occur, I think. Oh, and, yeah. and there's many plane crashes involved. It's, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it just, it just felt kind of fell into those. I'll, I'll say the memes are, you know, the talk stuff is, is a lot of fun, you know, gone through a lot of training to learn how to do that. But the memes, no one teaches you how to do the memes. Those are challenging. You know, you got to got to find something that's relevant, something that fits. There's a lot of different memes out there. It's uh, I don't know. I've gotten a lot of different experience in different realms. So it's been a lot of fun and I've gotten good feedback too. So it's been a blast. Absolutely. It's really memes are kind of their own subspecialty. Yeah, I, it's <laughs> and the medical meme fellowship hasn't come out yet. Yeah, yeah. keep an eye out for it. I'm going to I'll start a fellowship for that in the in the distant futures. I, I think the near future. You'd be yeah. a great first, first director. Well, thank well, you. Thank you so much for joining the show and uh, lending your freshly sharpened toxicology expertise. Uh, we are very excited to have you on. Um, and for the listeners, as you know, in the Toxicologist versus the Internet episodes, it's a little bit different. There's no toxo here. And we're going to go through a couple segments. So the first segment, cases where we both review interesting toxicology cases, uh, reviewing the clinical findings, maybe some of the history of exposure. And then the other person will try to make an educated guess at what the potential exposure could be, uh, with the goal being for us uh, or for people to hear the differentials and maybe learn what common exposures look like. And then we have another segment called Toxicologist First the Internet, uh, where we answer questions from reddit.com slash r slash ask drugs. But before we get into that, Dr. Trebach, would you mind telling us why you chose to pursue a toxicology fellowship after all your many years already of extensive medical training? What, what is it that you enjoy about toxicology? Yeah, that's a you know, fantastic question. It, I, I find that with medical toxicology, it uh, really falls into like big, three big categories. Uh, the first is it has a very strong public health component, which I, I very much uh, enjoy. You know, in emergency medicine and throughout residency, I got to see just the power that that public health can can have in treating our patients 
uh, not just in the emergency department, but also at a population-based level. So whether this is with uh, things like naloxone or um, educate, educating and teaching parents and caretakers how to store and safely keep track of medications and things like that, uh, I, I find there's a lot of, a lot of work to, that can be done just before patients even arrive to the emergency department. So from a public health standpoint, I, it's something I really appreciate. The second thing is, is that I've always been someone who liked pathophysiology, uh, even in, in med school. I found that understanding how a disease works or a drug works or how symptoms manifest really help, helped me memorize things a little bit better and made me understand. And I found that quite enjoyable. I found it a lot of fun. And so the world of toxicology, we are people who love pathophysiology, uh, perhaps even too much. Sometimes the pathophysiology in the absence of any data whatsoever will drive our management of someone. And that's always, it's always fun to, to be able to say, oh, well, I'm pretty sure it's this receptor. So it would reason that ketamine would work or, you know, something like that. So it's, it's a good time. And then, and then lastly, as you kind of mentioned to, or alluded to earlier with some of these puzzles, I, I do love uh, puzzles and mysteries and figuring things out. And sometimes toxicology is a big uh, who done it? You know, I've gotten consults before where people are like, look, we don't, we really don't know what's going on, but someone asked us, is this tox? And so we're going to ask you that. And it's funny. Sometimes the question is like, Hey, this person has this rash. Is this tox? I'm like, Oh, it could be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think the answer, I think the answer is always, it could be. Uh, but uh, every now and then you, 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 were they working with limes? Yeah, exactly. You know, you're, you're, People, you know, infectious disease always gets a lot of the credit for taking those de detailed histories, and they certainly do. I love my ID colleagues, but I find that we ask some very <laughs> interesting questions as well. Uh, like, how how often were you using these these skin creams? What what did the cream look like? Uh, what season was it? Where did you go? What country were you, you get it in? From Mexico. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, it for those three things: the public health, the pathophys, and in the puzzles. It's it's quite a lot of fun. And the, the people are great too. It's a wonderful community. It's, it's, I feel like every toxicologist knows each other. It's a small world, surprisingly. The three P's, public <laughs> health, pathophys, and puzzles. Wow, look at that. There are three P's. How about that? If that puts a smile on your face, <laughs> toxicology might be for you. Yes. I like that. I definitely hear the uh, pathophysiology is a very commonly brought up component. I think everyone who finds their way into this really likes a mechanism. Uh, and that's kind of nice too. Sometimes in medicine, there's so much evidence and you have to do so much by evidence, but sometimes when there's not any evidence and all you have to run on is the pathophys, it, it, it's a little bit, not wild west, but it's more free. Yeah. Sometimes we have a case report thrown in there. <laughs> that's right. And then there's evidence. Then there's evidence. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Of and, course. Uh, I think it's a sentiment echoed by many toxicologists. So, okay. Well, maybe we can just dive right into the show here. So the first segment is called, uh, is where we're going to do some fatal overdoses or potentially non-fatal, but severe overdoses. And these are generally sourced from the American Association of Poison Control Center fatality reports. These are real fatalities that were poison centers were contacted about. And we certainly don't want to make light of any of the fatalities that occurred, but these are real patients that a clinician might encounter, and it's important for them to be able to understand what the presentation might look like in order for them to handle it. Um, I will say, actually, in this episode, I have pulled a few just case reports of interesting exposures that weren't deaths um, that I thought might be relevant or interesting. So uh, the only rules are you can't give away the poison. 
and you you know de-identify if there's an antidote that's only used for one thing or like a very very clear well, I guess you could give history whatever you think is important. sure sure so would you like me to start and kind of give an example or do you want to kick it off oh yeah let's have you give the case first so I I, I make sure I don't give too much when I do it okay all right well here's the deal I have six cases <laughs> <laughs> And I have randomized them. So okay. I felt like this would be perfect for someone who's like studying for their tox boards. <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> so they are a little more, they're a little more challenging just so that they're less frequently seen. Okay, this will be fun. But I, but I think, I think it'll be good. I don't know. <laughs> so just pick a number one through six for me. Let's do uh, two. And do you want me to choose two numbers? No, two is, oh boy. Oh God. (laughs) Oh no, what is this like? Okay, Okay. ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, two British medical students, a 23-year-old female and a 24-year-old male were on rotation in the South Pacific Cook Islands. It was an elective. (laughs) They shared a meal. Okay. And 12 hours later, developed nausea, vomiting, and this progressed to paresthesia of the mouth, hands and feet, myalgias, puritis, and cold allodynia, where cold objects felt hot to the touch. They presented to the emergency department after the development of the neurologic symptoms, and they were given antihistamines. But in the duration of this case, their neurosymptoms persisted for about four weeks, and actually, the cold allodynia lasted about 10 weeks total. Interesting. They didn't die. Love to hear Their that. Their plane could have crashed on the cook island. <laughs> oh, gosh. And the meal that they shared was oh, a... I don't, want, I don't want you to tell me the meal. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I feel like just hearing that you know, alone, it makes me feel good that two of them either are having identical strokes at the same time or they probably <laughs> it seems less likely someone that always crosses my mind to play the odds game we're like well what are they with strokes you know uh, it's a little bit more um unlikely you know just hearing hearing two people on an island said cook <laughs> said cook islands an island i heard island uh, yeah makes i didn't know where think, cook island was i had to look it up honestly i don't i'm not entirely sure i have a guess but island is kind of what i need to hear i think Eating something, uh, which sounds like it might be some, you know, given that they're on an island, maybe something that lives in the water, um, makes me think, you know, there's a huge, huge broad differential for the different types of, you know, fish or shellfish, things that you can eat. But the the temperature symptoms that you gave are super, buzzword might be too strong, but they make me think of certain conditions. The big two, I think of when I hear about like temperature involvement or temperature reversal or this cold allodynia would be Ciguatera, uh, and then also uh, neurotoxic shellfish poisoning. It's, it's it's wild to me in fellowship that you learn about all these different things in the water that can do awful things, and it's just terrifying. Uh, and so, if I had to put my my money down, I would say this sounds like Ciguatera just by the length of the symptoms that they last. They lasted this long, and that no one died. Uh, but I think there's a little bit more. I could expand that differential out a bit. Uh, well, given what I what I have for you, which isn't a lot, you just won your money. That would be Ciguatera. That would be Ciguatera. I, yeah, I didn't even have to tell you it was a parrotfish. 
Oh, because if <laughs> okay. I had told you it was a shellfish, it really, yeah, right, it would have narrowed it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, yeah, those are those are pretty uh, pretty interesting. I feel like the I just I've never experienced that temper those temperature symptoms before, but I can only imagine. I also feel like sometimes people describe like uh, their teeth feel like they're falling out or their teeth yeah, feel loose, numb. Loose yeah, or loose teeth. Yeah, uh, which again, it's a little bit uh, scary. It's terrifying the amount of toxins that come from the sea that's kind of a, <laughs> maybe a theme that i have here but oh, um, so yes you were right on track ciguatera and i think the key there being cold allodynia is some have described it as pathonomic for ciguatera where mm-hmm. your reversal of hot cold sensation yeah i have some ciguatera fast facts oh if you'd yeah. like if you'd like any Love them. so uh for the listeners ciguatera it's actually one of the more common uh, seafood-related poisonings. I don't think it's the most. I think it's the most common fin fish-related poisoning. But uh, so ciguatoxin activates sodium channels, causing an influx of ions. So it basically turns your sodium channels on. It's sort of like uh, the monk's hood of the sea, although much less lethal, or the gryanotoxin of the sea. Nice. So it activates sodium channels, depolarizing cells, and that's kind of like the hand wave. It's, it's a sodium channel related thing. And that's why you get nerve, you know, nerve involvement. But the way that humans eat it is via biomagnification. So dinoflagellates in the Gambier discus genus, I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation, <laughs> uh, which grow on algae, they produce ciguatoxin precursors. And then herbivores eat the algae. They get those precursors, which then get converted into ciguatoxin. And then predator, predator fish eat the herbivores. And they are eating multiple herbivores and all of the ciguatoxin that those herbivores ate and they're concentrating it into that fish. And then we eat the predator fish that concentrated all the ciguatoxin from the herbivore fish into itself. So that's the biomagnification. Um, This example was a parrot fish, but there are tons and tons of different fish that have been implicated in ciguatera, barracuda, eel, uh, amberjack, sea bass, sturgeon, parrotfish have all sometimes been called out or, or have been associated with cases. Uh, I think like over 400 different species have been identified, but generally they inhabit a kind of low-lying shore areas or coral reefs where they can feed on um, these dinoflagellates that grow near coral generally or algae. I mean, it's a reef, reef areas are usually. Um, so that's why we don't see a ton of this in the u.s but there are cases that crop up and are reported uh, throughout the united states obviously more often in coastal areas and southern so california florida hawaii has cases that are associated with it it's kind of like esoteric out here but in cook island apparently has the <laughs> highest rate per capita of any any island how about that um you know, I don't hear about really many deaths, but what's fascinating is that 10 weeks of cold allergenia. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it seems to be persistent in the, in the biologic system for some reason. Yeah. I've heard that patients can have, can go, well, yeah, quite several months and just have some, some symptoms that continue to last. So it can, it's not like some acute episode that you're just done with immediately. Right. Unfortunate. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, yeah. Check your fish. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> There's no test for it really. Although yeah. I, like some university probably has a test, but yeah. I'm sure, sure that it's a send, it's a send out. You can't add it on. So one of my favorite reasons for, for this was this was a case report that clearly two medical students wrote about themselves. 
<laughs> and I loved it. I loved that, yeah. that dedication. That yeah, that yeah. was good. I, yeah. I'm appreciate. Yeah, I so appreciate excellent that. job. And they didn't die. So happy. Yeah, ending. happy ending. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned also, did you say neurotoxic? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So there are many other potential sodium modulating toxins out there, like brevitoxin, saxitoxin, all those things. And uh, so whether you eat a shellfish, bursa fish kind of narrows your differential a little bit. Yeah. Because you have paralytic, uh, neurotoxic, and amnestic shellfish poison. There's a whole bunch of wild ones. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was that was the case. You nailed it. Oh, yeah. Those are fun. The sea. Be afraid of the ocean. Be afraid yes. of the water. Terrifying things. Made inside. to not help us live. <laughs> agreed. Well, not agreed. in it. Outside. Yeah. Good toxicology, though. Very good toxicology in the ocean. All right. You got one for me? Yeah, I do. Let me... Uh... Let me pull this up. So, so this is a 16 year old female who intentionally ingested uh, a substance they ordered offline. Uh oh. Wait, offline? Like they went. Or, to a excuse me. It 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 was online, but they got it off online. <laughs> well, what is the actual correct way to say that? I don't know. I don't know. I think they don't I, teach us that in fellowship. So I think both are okay. Just being, <laughs> she. <you know. laughs> She purchased, she purchased it online. Perfect. Uh, so unfortunately, there's a very, very limited history because uh, the patient just arrived uh, unresponsive and, and cyanotic. Oh, no. Hi- hypotensive. O2 sat was just persistently in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they started to send, they immediately sent their labs, noticed that. Um, All right. When did they give the methylene blue? <laughs> yeah um i didn't even tell you what the met hemoglobin was they did get a met hemoglobin that came back at greater than 30 percent so my guess mm-hmm. so the differential i mean you have a rapidly well actually i don't know if it was rapid but you have an unconscious cyanotic patients particularly with um pulse ox readings in the 70 percent range yeah. and you know for that with the pulse ox reading I'm going to think this is probably an ingestion of a nitrite salt leading to fatal methemoglobinemia. But you could also think, I mean, common things being common without the methemoglobin level, an opioid overdose certainly fits this as well. Hmm. You know, you have a cyanotic person and they, they're unresponsive. But you said they bought it on the internet. Yes. And you absolutely, people do buy synthetic opioids on the internet. But given the history, you know, I'm thinking this is a little more nefarious cyanide right the cyanosis is right in the term wouldn't necessarily affect your pulse ox in fact usually they have you know bright red blood and they're highly oxygenated because they can't use it and then pulse ox interference is sort of special for methemoglobin inducers because pulse oximeters just shine a wavelength of light at your hemoglobin and depending on the oxygen saturation of your hemoglobin your iron is in a different conformational state so depending on that conformation it shines or reflects a different wavelength back at the pulse ox. And that tells us how much oxygen is attached to your hemoglobin. And when you have methemoglobin and your iron is oxidized from ferrous to ferric iron, uh, you reflect a different wavelength back. So it interferes with the pulse oximeter. At really high levels, it tends to just show 85%. So for that reason, when I think of like pulse ox interference, it kind of dings methemoglobinemia or low pulse ox. But you couldn't have that with other things like hypoxia, obviously. But this is unfortunately, sounds to me like a case of uh, the disturbing trend of increase in suicide by ingestion of nitrite salt on the 
uh, which people read about on the internet. Well, you're you're exactly right. Uh, this was, you know, these. This is the sodium nitrate powder. And then those nitrites will oxidize the iron in your blood from Fe2+, making it Fe3+, and unable to really carry oxygen well. From ferrous to ferric iron. I always remember ferric is the 3+, plus because Rick is really mean. and He won't... Wait, wait. Oh, yeah. So he, he throws himself onto the two-seater on the ferrous wheel. <laughs> oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot, but I... <laughs> The weirder it is, usually the better. Yeah, it is. that's true. That's true. Um, and do you want to go through the rest of the case so we can hear the the presentation? Yes. And patient is is quite ill. They're hypotensive. Their GCS is three. Their tachycardic to one thirty. The initial labs it seems to show like a pH of six point eight one. Obviously, Ooh. very very bad. It sounds like that hospital didn't actually have methylene blue. They had to get it from a nearby hospital which uh, is interesting because I feel like there's certain antidotes that all hospitals should, should have. And so I'm not sure if this was a, they didn't stock it or if they ran out from another patient, I'm not sure, but it sounds like they had to get methylene blue from a nearby hospital. And then unfortunately the, the patient did code despite even receiving the, the uh, methylene blue continued to have persistent met hemoglobins greater than 30% and ultimately died about two hours after arrival to the emergency department. Oh, it's very quick. Yeah. I, I, unfortunately, we've just been seeing a large uptick in the amount of these, these cases. And it's truly devastating because it's exactly as you said, you can just order this stuff offline. It is used for, I believe the powder is used for curing meats. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so if, there's two like different camps of like reviews or discussions about around this product. It's people who are using it for its intended purpose. And then people who are using it as a way to commit suicide and, you know, Googling this or looking this up on the internet, you'll find people telling you how to use this. If you, you know, want to harm yourself. And I feel like uh, it's, it's a little bit dangerous that something so, so scary can just be purchased off Amazon. I don't know. Can you get it delivered with prime? I, I, I don't know. This is some scary so, stuff. I actually, after the first case of this that I ever saw, we had a, it was a met hemoglobin of like 80%. I actually bought two pounds of it off prime just to see what it looked like. And it was like yeah. $15 and, but it's a curing salt. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So maybe the best name for a case series I've ever heard. Um, a past guest of our show and the associate medical director of our poison center, Dr. Jillian Theobald. She wrote, it's called beef jerky blues. Um, <laughs> and it's a, because nice. it's all these people using nitrites to make beef jerky as a cure mm-hmm. salt and then getting that hemoglobinemia. Yeah. I think something that stood out to me about this case was that not having, it's a terrifying situation to think you have a patient who's got a tremendously high uh, met hemoglobin level. And then you're not, if you don't have methylene blue on hand, what are you going to do? And, you know, even heroic options that have been theoretically discussed, like exchange transfusion or yeah. something, like, I don't know if you're going to be able to exchange transfusion or a hypotensive, unstable patient effectively, but you know, at it, that's just a situation I would, I would never really want to be in, but even as we saw though, people can get methylene blue and still unfortunately die just because that sounds like that that hemoglobin level can be just so, so darn high. It was interesting that this hospital could only measure greater than 30%. It's yeah. good. I don't know. I'm used to seeing the number. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I feel like you know, something that I've seen in, in just all these cases in fellowship and, you know, Tox Fellowship is great. You just get so, you get hammered with so many cases day after day after day. Uh, something that I've seen is that some places will be like, oh, you know, this, this Tylenol concentration is like greater than 50. And I'm like, you know, we need more than that. Like, I'm like, yeah. come on. Like, and then other times <laughs> be like, you know, oh, like less than 200. And I'm like, can we, like, I don't, I don't know. I think what I've learned is that it's either the way the lab reports it because this is how, and they can, other times it's been the lab can't give a number. Like I, one time I spoke with someone in the lab and they were like, oh, I can't type in a, a physical number. I have to write it in the comments. And I was like, oh, this is so strange. I feel like this could be dangerous because 31% versus 90% are dramatically <laughs> different. Right. And uh, although both are not ideal, one yeah. does spark less joy than the other. It does spark much less joy. <laughs> uh, oh, and the methylene blue. So for the listeners, there is a uh, guideline. I believe Richard Dart is the first author but it's about antidote stocking in emergency departments. And it has recommendations for what should be available within one hour, what should be immediately available. So <laughs> you work at a hospital where there's no methylene blue, maybe check that guideline. I'm betting they had methylene blue, but ortho wanted to do a bunch of joint challenges to, to, to see. Our ortho loves injecting methylene blue into joints. In case yeah, it's a, good, it's, a, it's a good point. I feel like- They drained it. They drained. Yeah, there's, you always got to know who has got the, the backup supplies of your, your antidotes, right? Like, right. you know, the ophthalmologist will have atropine if you need it. Uh, maybe the ortho people <laughs> have methylene blue. I like that. I like that. All right. Well, excellent. Thank you very much for that case. Let's trudge on to the next case. So let's right. do uh, let's do five. Five, five. Oh, I don't, I don't like your responses to whatever no, I number. <laughs> it's fun and I like this one. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go for it. A healthy 48-year-old woman and co-author of this paper developed. <laughs> so they called it out right away in the abstract of this. Okay. Okay. That's <laughs> you funny. know she didn't die. That's good. So a healthy 48-year-old woman and co-author of this paper developed palpitations, tachycardia, and hypotension. 10 minutes after eating a peppery tuna steak dinner. <laughs> she subsequently <laughs> developed numbness of her face, severe flushing, conjunctival erythema, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headache, and chest pain, prompting her to seek emergency care. In the emergency department, her ECG actually revealed tachycardia, with ST depression and her hypotension was refractory to fluid resuscitation requiring phenylephrine uh, to correct it. The patient was started on uh, famotidine and managed to be weaned off their, their uh, vasopressors and was discharged from the hospitals 43 hours after their initial presentation with a normal ECG. Oh, that's nice. Wonderful. So, Got a patient, they eat a peppery tuna steak, become hypotensive, refractory to fluid requiring vasopressors. They have some signs of ischemia on ECG. They are flushed. Flushed, yeah. Privately injected. Yeah, you know, I feel like the, you know, it's, it's funny. I've definitely eaten peppery things before and this has crossed my mind. I'm like, oh gosh, is this it? Uh, <laughs> or or did I just put too much pepper on this? But the, the saying the, the, the peppery taste usually makes me think of uh, scombroid uh, toxicity. Ding, ding. 
there's a lot of, you know, there's in the world of foodborne stuff. I don't know if your trend here is cases where people didn't die or cases where people ate something and didn't die or cases where people were the patients and that's then wrote about tr- it. <laughs> that's my trend right now. Yeah. This is where it was a fish and you wrote about yourself. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So uh, scramboid, you know, usually people, story is, is they'll have, they're eating some sort of fish that's been bacterially there's bacteria on the fish or something it's like the fish was warm or left out and they eat it they know this peppery taste their best friend who also ate it says yeah i agree and then symptoms exactly as you said i don't think i've ever seen someone with ischemia though on their ekg uh uh, from it i'm betting it was just from the florid hypotension i mean yeah yeah, probably hypotension and rate related rate related in quotes that's what we always say yeah so Uh, that is unusual that's i think why this was a case report yeah it's very interesting so for the listeners, scombroid is basically histamine poisoning. You've all heard of antihistamines, uh, which histamine is an inflammatory regulator. Uh, when you release it, you vasodilate so that your immune cells can get into your bloodstream and attack whatever non-self that you find. Um, but fish have the amino acid histidine in their body. And if they're inappropriately stored, so greater than 40 degrees Celsius, the bacteria that are natural to the fish will metabolize the histidine via histidine decarboxylase into histamine. So you basically eat an allergy as a fish Hmm. and it leads to uh, erythema, irritation. Uh, So you use conjunctival injection. It's just red eyes, vasodilation, and we'll see flushing. And this patient had a very severe case where they, you know, vasodilated so much they became hypotensive. The fish that are implicated in this are fish in the Scombridae family, unsurprisingly, which are fish that have a higher level of histidine sort of at baseline. So they're more likely to have kind of a toxic level of histamine being produced if they're uh, inappropriately stored. So these are fish like tuna, mackerel, uh, marlin, a lot of fish that people generally eat. And it's okay because it's really a storage issue that leads to this. I kind of brought this one up because here in Wisconsin, this is people are transporting fish three days on land into Wisconsin. So mm-hmm. we, we risk scombroid a little bit if it's inappropriately stored, but we don't see a lot of the other, uh, you know, shellfish. Although we do have some harmful algal blooms here sometimes, but people don't mm-hmm. usually go swimming in that. So yeah. I thought it was a good case. <laughs> Eating an allergy. It's, uh, it's, it's a great way to describe it. it. Sounds terrifying also, but yeah, I've seen a few cases of these. Again, it's like, I, th- I think most of the times I've had patients, they've done quite well. You just, you know, give your supportive care and your anti-histamines. And right. yeah, it's, that's, right. a, that's an easy management one to remember. <laughs> it's the antidote is in the name. Right? <laughs> I think my theme here, just as an aside, my theme here has been people who wrote case reports about themselves because I recently tried, well, I succeeded in one journal. I failed in another one. Uh, I actually just got accepted for publication, a case report I wrote about myself. Oh, gosh. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, well, it, it got denied because it was okay. a single author case report written about themselves. I can understand that. I added a second author on to increase its objectivity. Uh, but then I submitted it to NACCT, and even though the comments were really good, they they were like, oh, sorry, it doesn't meet uh, enough rigor. Aww. But basically, I spilled like 500 micrograms of fentanyl on my skin. And I was like, hey, everyone's freaking out right now about touching skin and occupational oh, yeah. stuff. And I was like, this is actually confirmed fentanyl that, you know, I did fine. And I had a medical exam afterwards. 
but uh, it did get accepted to pre-hospital disaster medicine. So I was excited about that. Well, I think that's a great case because you're right. There's a lot of misinformation about there of someone having fentanyl in their shoe, three states across, and then (laughs) you hear about it on the phone and then suddenly you need naloxone. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So uh, there is a little bit of, I think, a malaligned risk perception of dermal exposure to fentanyl and you need good confirmed exposures in order to combat that misinformation. Is that a line uh, from the, is that a line from the case report? Uh, it's something, <laughs> but I just remember. So when I was submitting the letter to, or when I was like sending my letter that you send in whatever to the editor, that yeah, yeah, yeah. process, I was just like, there have been well-established precedents of people writing <laughs> about personal experiences and i had to cite the nobel prize winning study where a guy drank h pylori and gave himself oh yeah that's a great one everyone i was like look someone can write win a nobel prize about this i should be able to yeah i i support you oh cool i'll I'll be on the lookout for it i i thank you we'll we'll see if it actually makes it through but anyway so i was bringing them into my my personal experiences here but all right, should we jump on to another case? You got another yes, one? yes. I have a I have I have a great one for you oh, that uh, I'm excited for. Well, I, I think when I was reading the reports, I was uh, interested to see this one listed as a you know this is a fatality, but I was very interested. I was like, huh, like this is, uh, interesting. So when I read it, I was like, hmm. So uh, I'll give you the case. It's a 63 year old female comes to the ED. 12 hours after consuming a weight loss product, she was told they were a special type of nuts and that she was supposed to mix one in some tea. And then instead she ate five of them and then came to the ED. She was bradycardic and having nausea, vomiting and her potassium was 7.3. And she, you know, her ditch was negative. EKG just slowed some slow AFib. Oh, ditch mm. negative. It's so negative. you bring up bradycardia hyperkalemia. And obviously, what am I thinking? Well, digoxin, right? Because yeah. ditch is a sodium potassium ATPase inhibitor. It raises our resting membrane potential, allowing the heart to depolarize easier. It also causes easier depolarization with the vagus nerve, leading to bradycardia. And a reduced heart rate because you have increased uh, stroke volume. So the body kind of auto-regulates and reduces your heart rate to maintain cardiac output. So we kind of pathonomically can see bradycardia. And because we're inhibiting potassium from being pumped into the cell, we see hyperkalemia. Um, and that would match right here. But why would we have a negative dig level? So what else could cause hyperkalemia? Okay, obviously there's some organic causes. Maybe she has renal injury, you know, bradycardia, hyperkalemia. It sounds like adrenal insufficiency, but we're here talking about tox. I'll give you all full disclosure here. I know exactly what this is because I know the person <laughs> who wrote this case report. Oh, wait, really? That's not fair. <laughs> he is also a past guest of the Poison Lab, oh, uh, Dr. Justin Corcoran. And this would be um, a dietary supplement for weight loss. So the dietary supplement it was supposed to be is this new as Delia, I think. Yeah. Um, they they don't list that part, but I, it is some sort of, it's uh, supposed to be candle nut candle and nuts. Yeah. Oleander. Yeah. It was or yellow it was, oleander. Yep. Yeah. So Scary. this is one of our cardiac glycoside containing plants, yeah. yellow oleander. Interestingly 
I think it is also one of the only cardiac glycosides, one of the only prospective randomized trials in all of toxicology. And there's only like, I don't know, maybe 10 of them uh, is using multi-dose activated charcoal for uh, yellow oleander uh, in order to reduce because there's some enterohepatic recirculation. So you can give a bunch of charcoal over time to bind it from the gut right, as it's being recirculated. So, uh, but it contains a digitalis-like compound, same mechanism, but might not be detected by the lab. This person get like 20 vials of digibine. They didn't say how much they, they got, but yeah, that's, I believe actually for yellow oleander, I think that's what one of the case reports suggests is like 20 vials. With, right. Because you have no lot, idea. Yeah, you have no idea. You just give it till they... I mean, <laughs> until they're better hopefully yeah hopefully yeah but, and then you give them another 20 vials that doesn't work. yeah a lot, lot of things out there with cardiac glycosides in them many plants would include the oleanders uh we have foxglove which is the very pretty one that everybody knows with the big bells uh lily of the valley and then my personal favorite is uh the bufadiene toad contains mm, that's a great one it's great one. um Bufotoxins, which have cardiac glycoside activity. So you can find them in many areas. But what was interesting here is the whole weight loss. You know, it was supposed to be a different herbal product. No surprise. Yeah. Herbal supplier lied to you. And yeah, it's you know, uh, that it's it's very terrifying. The whole world of these non-really FDA regulated products. You know, we've I've definitely had cases just in fellowship where someone says they were taking something and we're like, that doesn't sound right. And then we test it and we're like, oh, that's because it's not what they said it was. And, uh, you know, these things, these preparations, these herbal supplements and things they sell aren't really held to the same level of scrutiny that your, your Keflex is, right? right. So it's, it's, it's not the same playing field and it can be a little bit dangerous. I mean, I find it absolutely terrifying that someone had surprise yellow oleander I mean, yeah. this is something people take to purposely try and commit suicide. And this person took it, what it sounds like unintentionally to, for a weight loss. Yeah. That's just wild. I, yeah. yeah. That's unfortunate. I wonder what happened to the manufacturer. Probably nothing. I, I doubt it might not have even been in the U S I don't know how you even, oh, it's an yeah. interesting landscape. Yeah. Very interesting. Very sad. Well, excellent. A great reminder to be very careful about what you're taking OTC. There are some companies out there that do third-party verification. So if you are someone who's going to take something dietary or, you know, herbal, please make sure somebody's looked at it to make sure it is what they say it is. Cause generally speaking, nobody's regulating that. Okay. Well, we're going to do another case or we can go on to questions. What's your, what's your feeling? I found some cool questions that I think are, are fun to talk about. I think just because, uh, I don't know. I brought up two, two deaths and I was a little depressing. So maybe we can pivot into something less depressing. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So now we're going to move on to uh, our toxicologist versus the internet segment, where we'll discuss some of the questions posted on reddit.com slash r slash ask drugs. And we will consider sort of the things that we would think about if there was a consult about somebody asking these questions um, from a health and, and toxicologic perspective. So if you want to kick it off, I can do my yeah. best to try to answer it. Sure. Uh, well, so I have a couple that I, I found, but the two that I think are, are most interesting, we'll start with, I, I didn't write down the username. I feel like I, I should have, because that would have been okay. fun. But uh, someone had uh, asked when I was looking on, on Reddit, 
different uh, experiences that they and their partner were experiencing when taking coding. And we're curious uh-huh. why that is and how they are about the same age and how can that, how can the drug affect them differently? And it's strange to me because I, I'm reading the comments and I'm like, oh, I think I know the answer to this. And I'm like, I, do I tell? Like, I, I, like, I mean, like, <laughs> like I, I see it in the other comments. I'm like, well, that's obviously wrong. Like, you know, <laughs> so, so I promise cool. it's better to, to stay. <laughs> yeah, I just stay. Unless off. you just, think there's imminent risk to health. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> my thoughts. So I was like, no, I'm just going to I'm going to leave this one alone. But yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And that was a good question for a, 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 a toxicology fellow, I think, or or someone a- with a fledging absolutely. interest. Absolutely. So there is probably a very clear reason, and it has to do with CYP2D6 polymorphism. So codeine, you could almost think of it as a prodrug. So I always teach all my learners, um, any opioid with a C gets metabolized to an opioid with an M via the enzyme system CYP2D6. So for instance, codeine goes to morphine, hydrocodone goes to hydromorphone, oxycodone goes to oxymorphone, all via the enzyme CYP2D6. And for those, CYP is just cytochrome P450. It's an enzyme that our body uses part of the first step of drug metabolism. It makes the drug more able to have another molecule attached to it that makes it really water-soluble so you can pee it out. CYP2D6 is one of the most genetically variable CYP enzymes. So if the actual parent compound being codeine is actually, you know, a weak mu agonist, which it is, then if you're a weak CYP2D6 metabolizer genetically, you won't get a very strong effect from the opioid because you're not making a lot of morphine. And that's really where most people get their uh, opioid-like analgesia. Um, One of the reasons why I don't particularly think it's a good analgesic. It's similar to the tramadol problem. Mm, preach. Uh, there are some genes also that, uh, you know, have been identified with differential expression of mu opioid receptors, which could play a role in people having different experiences, but it's less fun to talk about. Was one of them saying that they had a, you know, a really extreme effect versus, it, 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 I, you know, I, I couldn't really tell too much from the stem, but it just seemed like one person was getting the desired euphoric effects and the other person was not. And, you know, I, I was also wondering, in addition to the, to the genetic polymorphisms, I was like, well, I wonder if, you know, are they on any other prescribed medications that interact with CYP2D6, right? Like if you're, you know, and it, we know historically people combine drugs to, you know, to work with or against their CYP enzymes to give them desired effects. You know, there's a lot of history there. And you do that uh, all I, the time, pharmaceutically. We use yeah. boosters. In the new drug, uh, Paxlovid, there's a CYP inhibitor to boost it. Yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting, and I think something that I always wondered in in the world of toxicology is, hey, like if someone took a toxic drug that's metabolized or you know that gets broken down by SIP, can we take give them something that speeds up that metabolism? Unfortunately, it seems like uh, I don't know if that's really panned out too well. It seems like it takes a little bit to ramp up your SIP. It's not like something that happens like a light switch, but a very potential potential source of uh, scientific exploration in the future. I don't know. Yeah. For the brodificum compounds, which last years, oh, yeah. whatever it is, months, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, super yeah. warfarin, they're CYP2C, I think it's 2C9 or it's 19. It's the same one that I think warfarin undergoes. I know I've read a case report of 
giving somebody phenobarbital chronically to rev up their sip enzymes so they can metabolize their bodificum. So that's yeah. exactly what you're. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That makes sense for drugs that last a long time like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, very, very interesting. And so, yeah, when I, when I read this question, I was like, ah, oh, y'all need some, some genetic testing for your sip enzymes and then maybe some med rec. Uh, but I, I didn't comment. I just, just, you know, made me think about my, I got very introspective and I wondered about my own sip enzymes and I was like, I wonder what my 2D6 is up to. Like, you know, I think if you do the 23 and me or like one of those, those gene genetic, they'll tell you, they give you your sip profile. Uh, I don't know if it's always phenotypically the same as, as what yeah. you said, I mean, do I want to know? Do I, yeah, I don't right? know. Like, do I, I just, I just assume everything's going great down there, but yeah. like maybe history is the spice <laughs> of life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that was a good uh, question. I applaud you on uh, withholding your answer from the, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I did. I let that one go. Um, I have one that we can jump into here. Yeah, let's do it. This one made me laugh a lot. So we're going to do this one. Let's do it. Here's the question. <laughs> Try <laughs> not to laugh. Okay. The question is, should I take these 600 milligram edibles? Question mark. <laughs> and uh, I'll read you the full text here. It says, so I bought some 600 milligram Jolly Rancher edibles and I've never done edibles before in my life. My friend who smokes hella weed took 300 milligrams and he was high for five hours. Unlike him, I don't do weed. So I wanted some advice on how to take them or if I should take them at all. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's a lot to put in a Jolly Rancher. It's a lot. It's a lot. In a, like the bag or just a single Jolly Rancher. From the context I'm getting from this, I think it's the Jolly Rancher. I, I mean, I don't, that's a lot. Like, I mean, I think the, the uh, you know, when we're teaching uh, people about these different cannabinoid containing products, aside from all the carcinogens that come with smoking something, when people are smoking a joint, for example, they can stop when they get their desired effects, right? Mm -hmm. However, if you were to like eat a 600 like milligrams of something and you just like chomp that up, like this isn't like suck on the Jolly Rancher and spit it out when you're like good to go. Like that's where people run into trouble. And I feel like I see more, I've been seeing a lot more uh, people having a bad time after taking large quantities of like THC, usually from edibles. It's not like someone smokes the joint and can't stop. And then they, oh, they like, it's usually like <laughs> someone takes too much. And so the, the joint is self titrating, right? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's exactly. It titrates itself, but uh, you just get this bolus of, of, of THC and overshoot. And for, for those who are not familiar with dosages of, of THC, 600 is, is quite a lot. I think I've seen like, I've seen a whole bag contain like of gummies contain a total of like 300 or, and you're yeah. supposed to eat one or something like that. Five to 10 milligrams is like the dosage unit that they require you parse it out into and like leave it. Yeah, yeah. Like or they'll sell a, a cookie that is like 50 and you're supposed to eat like a quarter of it or something like that, right? Like I've seen a lot of those things, but and the most terrifying thing about this is if it's in a candy form, if a child were to get into that, because, mm -hmm. you know, I think uh, this is my soapbox a little bit, but I feel like the whole pot is very, very safe and everyone does fine with it is, is for the adult population. But in the pediatric world, I've had patients get intubated. I've had patients get stroke workups. I've had patients get sedated, intubated, get an MRI, have all this stuff done because kids just seem to have 
a lot more clinical symptoms and not just like scary, like altered mental status, but even things like apnea and cyanosis and poor tone and some scary, scary things. So that, that quote was before the era of hyper-concentrated, hyper yeah. products that are now just out there. Mm-hmm. It was a different world. That was in the 70s. Everyone's was like 6% THC marijuana. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, with the advent of genetic you know, selection and, and hyper concentration, you have a, you know, hundred percent THC and like all dabs, shard, all this stuff. That's, yeah. You know, it's a whole other world. Yeah. So I think if you're gonna, if that person, unless they're have been escalating their THC intake to reach that point of comfort, comfort with that level, I think they're in for uh, quite a bad time. I don't, I'm glad they asked at least before trying to take, and hopefully the Redditors were supportive of not doing that, but I I do have some of their responses Um, from this person. They say, what (laughs) dude shoot for five milligrams. I use edibles and smoke weed and five to 10 gets me high AF dude. Stay away from anything about 15. Uh, another person said legal states do be wilded. <laughs> they do be, they do, they be. do be, they do oh, be. I just thought this was a great question because this is the person who goes to the emergency department. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, exactly. As you said, people aren't familiar with the pharmacokinetics of now what is widely available edible THC products. So they think they'll experience something. First off, they don't know how to estimate their dose. Right. And they take 600 milligrams, which is. Uh, yeah. 120 times the recommended dose for uh, someone who's never taken that per the Redditors at least. And then, uh, and what frequently happens is people will take something. It needs to become absorbed, sometimes metabolized before you really feel the effects mm-hmm. or they had a meal. So it's delayed and then they continue to take more. And then we see people, cause it's not like um, people using inhalational products where it's right away. So they end up overdosing themselves uh, and then causing panic attacks and whatever, you know, ending up in, in the ED. Cause, and then I think, you know, the, even the, we're focusing on the content, uh, which is quite a lot, 600 is quite a lot. But in addition to that, it's just having these things look like candy or food or anything delicious. Right. I mean, like does, d- does 600 milligrams of THC need to be in a like handheld piece of candy? Absolutely not. Right. I mean, like, this is, this is my toxicology soapbox and I apologize, but it's just, all it is, is a setup for people to get hurt. I mean, like, you know, even would it, would it be that bad to put it in something that is shaped like a pill or something that's not candy? Because I've treated patients who did not intend to get high, you know, or like I was cleaning my child's room and had a starburst mm-hmm. and it wasn't a starburst and you're only supposed to take half of it or something like that. Right. Uh, how do you and, make, how do you make a cookie that you're only supposed to eat yeah. a quarter of the, co- yeah, nobody's going to inherently yeah. know, eat a quarter of the cookie. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. You know, I can't, when I save like a, some pizza for later, it's like 10 minutes later. Like I don't, you know, so uh, yeah, I don't know. There's, I know there is some legislation that's been introduced and different States have different approaches, but you know, not just candies, but like they'll have, you know, these things that look like Oreos or, you know, things that look and taste good and I get it. And it's a lot of trouble when, you know, I've seen some of these products have different languages on them too. And so you may think that a bag that looks like some sour candy 
and you can't read it is probably sour candy, but who knows how much THC it yeah. has and a handful, no one eats. Like if you, if you buy a bag of gummy worms, you're not going to eat a worm and then call it a day. Right. <laughs> I just <laughs> want one worm today. Guys. Yeah. You're like, look, it's been a day. I just need, I just I need one, one sour worm. worm, one worm. Like, no, you're going to, you're going to be like me. You're going to be a mess. You're going to eat a bazillion of them. Mm-hmm. And then if these all contain THC, you're going to wind up in the emergency department. And yeah. Definitely have treated these patients too. <laughs> Like, so I, I digress. I digress. Thank you for I indulging. I understand. <laughs> well, really what I find interesting because Wisconsin, it's all illegal still, but Delta eight everywhere now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Huge yeah, yeah. In, in same problem. They're all gummies and there's Delta eight gummies that are a thousand milligrams and it just zonks. I mean, people are out from it. So pretty yeah, crazy, yeah. but I'm sure we have a bit of a unique vantage point, but people Lock up your stuff. Keep it away from kids. It looks like candy. All right. Yeah. Do you have another one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is this actually came to to me on uh, uh, Twitter, and I thought it was an interesting question. I saw people talking about this in a in another thread, and I just thought it was is very interesting. There's probably some history here that I'm I'm not an expert on, but asked if I have taken an expired drug do I need to go to the emergency department or like which drugs when they expire are bad? And I think it's, that was an interesting question because I think I definitely before, even during med school, I remember like finding old acetaminophen in my clock, like in my bathroom. And I was like, Oh, can't take this. Right. You know? And like, I, I guess we just never learned that or never were taught about that. And, uh, I don't know where this necessarily came from. I know that the FDA is big on like not taking expired meds for possible lack of like potency, I think is the biggest thing we worry about. But I feel like that's just like a common fear and concern that people have is like, oh, this NyQuil is expired. Am I going to blow up if I take it or, or whatnot? So yeah. I don't know. Have you heard that before? Uh, you know, people definitely have questions about it. And let me set the record straight right here. If you take any expired drug, it's full of cyanide and you're not going <laughs> to. Yeah, no, 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 no. Gonna... <laughs> that is a joke, uh, as I assume most of our listeners would know. Yeah, m- mainly. And actually, this comes into play a huge amount in hospitals with drug shortages. Yeah. For instance, physostigmine was expired. So the FDA looked at a couple batches of it, did some more testing. And guess what? It's all still there and still works fine. So. When you look at a drug expiration, it, the expiration is actually when 90% of the drug is still present and effective. That's what they call the shelf life. And that's what they did. The FDA determines is the expiration date. Many drugs can actually go on well beyond that. I know there is a study of naloxone and um, that was kept on an ambulance in the 1980s. And they found that when they tested it, it still had all of the same uh potency was all still able to be used. So we end up using a fair amount of expired drugs. It certainly depends on how it's stored. A lyophilized powder is probably going to be more stable yeah. than something that's been in solution and getting exposed to light. Um, and I also think when they do the testing of these expired drugs, they don't necessarily look at like, what did it turn into? They kind right. of look more like, Hey, what's is how much of the active product is still in here? Yeah. Um, I don't know of any drugs that expired as something worse than what they were, except actually I do think naloxone has a degradation product that is a mild opioid agonist. 
since it's an oxymorphone derivative, but you still have so much naloxone in there. Yeah. And also that's not, you know, it's kind of a unique thing. Most drugs, they're just less potent. I don't know of anything that actually goes like bad. I know historically there were cases of, and I talked and I actually had a, we chatted about this one day on, on rounds at, at work, but there were some cases way several, many years ago about different tetras, like tetracyclines causing Fanconi syndrome oh. or something like that. But I, I don't, I've never seen, and I don't know if this was just, I'll have to pull those case reports, but I don't get it. And I think that is not true anymore. <laughs> like, I don't, don't know if that's still a concern today. I don't believe so. I think it, you know, the biggest thing that would worry me, honestly, is that if someone is taking an expired immunosuppressive medication right mm-hmm. or uh or anti-epileptic ex- or something. exactly right like i don't want you to get take your expired anti-epileptic and go drive a car right not not wise but like if you're taking an expired for the for the formal record i don't encourage anyone to take expired medications however if you were to take an expired tylenol i don't think i would care much uh but you know i I think it should be noted though, that like with, with these expired medications, that doesn't mean they're always safe in that. Like if you have an expired medication that's been under your fridge for four years and you find it inside of a dead cockroach, that doesn't mean it's safe to take. <laughs> right. I, I think you should throw it away, yes. but like, <laughs> you know, in the perfect if, world. Yeah. Assuming <laughs> properly stored medications, right. You know, not right. covered in something, but in general, Um, Well, you bring up a good point about proper storage, too. So for one thing, I will go on the record and say my dad carries expired EpiPens. And I just, you know, if that's what he's got, then use it. All right. But obviously, I want him to have expired or non-expired stuff. But life-saving is all you got. You got to use it. But um, I also think you're, I think you are right about the tetracyclines. Because when you asked the question, there was like a weird, you know, subconscious thought of doxycycline in my yeah, brain right. i didn't bring it up because i don't remember anything about it it was just dinging so that associated somehow so you pro- i'll have to look into the tetracyclines because i bet you that's correct or at least there was old cases of yeah it. i think it's an old case or two uh, but the other thing that a lot of people don't realize especially with more extremes of weather is like drug excursions some drugs aren't that great with that um so if you leave your EpiPen in your car and you live yeah. in the South, it's 110 degrees every day. And you're basically boiling your EpiPen every day. You know, it's not necessarily going to maintain its potency as long as if you were storing it at room temperature. So, you know, we ran into this problem a lot with insulin. When I worked in community pharmacy, we were dispensing insulin. People had a long drive. They're always worried about how long can it be in the car? Yeah. Um, generally a couple of hours of excursions aren't a big deal, but in drug manufacturers will have data on this. If you call them, uh, but it's not a good idea to just leave things, you know, under the fridge or in a car. Yeah. Exactly. It's tough because we don't, you're right. When these drugs are made, they're not like, okay, so before we put it on the shelves, let's see how long we can drive with it before, you know, right. Like the common things we want to know the answers to are like, oh, like what if you took a shower and then the shower steamed up, but your drug, the bottle was open and you left it in there. Like, you know, mm-hmm. no one, we don't know the answers to these questions. And I'm sure that it, it can come into play a little bit, but in general, it's like loss of potency is the biggest thing we worry about. And I think, you know, it's always fun to see, uh, you know, when people do these reports on like atropine from prior world wars and you're like, oh, this <laughs> still works. Right. Uh, and so it's, it's good to know. So yes, nice. if I was in a life or death situation in, a potential antidote was expired, I would take it, assuming it was properly stored and not under my fridge. 
Correct. The last great frontier in medicine, putting pills into the shower. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, great. That's a great question. It's something that, yeah, we can only guess at for some things. But Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I have another question here. I'll tell you what. I'll give you your choice of the two because I think we probably only have time for one more. All right. Um, so here's the two questions. One is, does gabapentin increase or decrease the opiate high? And the second, am I in danger for drinking after taking ibuprofen? your hmm. choice or both if you want I, I think we you know let's um uh <laughs> so let's think so let's do, let's do the alcohol NSAID question first okay and then if uh we can see if that one's too complicated to answer or not so the the specific question was is it bad to take both or Here, here's what they said so yeah. this morning i took 600 milligrams of ibuflam <laughs> And I think they meant ibuprofen. And approximately three hours later, I had my first drink at a party. I know about the dangers. I just have a hard time saying no to someone. Uh, I drank some champagne, four shots of some 20%. Wow, they're really getting detailed. What, what time is this? Now at midnight, I have a stomach ache. Oh. Online, I read it can be an indicator for intestinal bleeding. Do you guys think I'm in danger? Well, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I'm... I'm not in my twenties anymore. And after I turned 30, I get gastritis when people say scenarios that I don't want to be in such as that one. All you had to do is throw in like, uh, some Tabasco sauce and I would have had to pause the podcast, but yeah, I think, you know, we know that NSAIDs are, you know, damaging to your gastric mucosa. Uh, I don't, I think if that person truly meant they were taking, um, ibuprofen and not whatever they said, you know, ibuflam. Ibuflam, even just people who don't also take, you know, or who aren't also drinking alcohol at the same time, but just ibuprofen on an empty stomach is, is a setup for just some like GI irritation. We know that there's a couple different mechanisms by which uh, NSAIDs can, can damage, you know, your, your stomach. You know, we know that it can not just be directly toxic, but can suppress uh, gastric prostaglandin synthesis. It can be uh, changes in mucosal blood flow. I mean, all of these are set up for perhaps interesting or just gastritis. Right. And so even me, a old man in their thirties, when I have to take uh, NSAIDs with my, you know, if I take coffee in the morning with my ibuprofen, I'm going to have a bad time. Right. It's just not, it's not wise. And so I think if you throw on something like alcohol, it is kind of setting up, you know, we know alcohol can be, can be irritating as well. And if you're drinking, that sounded like they had quite a lot to, to, uh, to drink. I make no judgments, but it sounded like that was it maybe is this the same person with the Jolly Rancher or is this a different? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so yeah, definitely a lot. So I mean, like, I, do I think this person may have had a, a GI bleed from it? I don't necessarily know their risk factors. It sounds like they may have had a bad, bad, bad gastritis, uh, just right. by just by the nature of what the two things they took. So no, I don't really recommend people do the two. Could I have done it in my twenties and gotten away with it? Probably, but um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so probably not the probably not the safest idea if you want to avoid some tummy aches right tummy aches are nearly a guarantee in that scenario so just like you said NSAIDs non-steroidal anti-inflammatories they inhibit an enzyme called cyclooxygenase which produces prostaglandins and those prostaglandins are what tell your gut cell to secrete mucus so you kind of start decreasing your mucus membrane in your gut that protects you from all the acidity now I add on some alcohol 
and you got a recipe for gastritis. In a normal, healthy individual with no other risk factors, 600 milligrams of ibuprofen, not going to cause a GI bleed usually from a single dose, just that more, more often that is a chronic issue that you develop GI bleeds from NSAIDs, unless you take a huge, huge amount. Because when you chronically erode your mucus or get rid of your mucus, you can get into some peptic ulcers and problems that way. Really, uh, I, I chose this question because I read a paper in pharmacy school, mm-hmm. a whole paper written about this. What do you do if you have a headache after a night of drinking? Do you take an NSAID? Oh, I love this. Tylenol. <laughs> because, okay, is it, you yes. know, right? NSAIDs, like you said, they inhibit prostaglandins. Well, those prostaglandins are responsible for keeping blood flow to the kidney when you don't have enough volume. They, they dilate the artery that brings blood to the kidney. Mm-hmm. So when you take an NSAID, you can prevent your body from being able to deliver blood to the kidney very well. And when you're drinking, you can get dehydrated, which predisposes you to not sending enough blood to the kidney. So you take the NSAID and maybe it's, you know, puts you, it sets you up for a little bit of decreased renal blood flow. And we call it a pre-renal acute kidney injury. Or do you take the Tylenol? So Tylenol or acetaminophen and alcohol share the same metabolic pathway, CYP2E1. And CYP2E1 is actually what metabolizes Tylenol to NAPKI, the toxic metabolite. This is where it all gets crazy because because if the Tylenol, if if CYP2E1 is occupied by alcohol, then you actually make less NAPKI. So this whole, this is Yeah, is this person a chronic use of alcohol or acute? I mean, you, these are the questions we want to know. Yeah. Uh, Let's, let's, we'll message them on Reddit and ask. Right. But that's actually what's interesting is it seems, at least in this paper I was reading, acute exposure to alcohol actually increases the rate of CYP2E1 activity non-transcriptionally. This is not induction of the enzyme and and non-allosterically. It's not, it's after the alcohol is gone. The CYP2E1 seems to work faster, which is very interesting, but it does somehow work. I'll have to find that paper. So in theory, if you take alcohol and Tylenol at the exact same time, you're going to make less napkin. But if you take Tylenol after you've drank I don't know how many hours, but interesting. Uh, and the alcohol is gone. You might make more napkin. Now, this is all theoretical. I mean, a single dose of Tylenol in a healthy individual is never going to create enough napkin to harm someone. It's very safe at, at recommended dosages, regardless of how fast your CYP2E1 is working. Although it depends on what their glutathione stores are, I guess. But, you know, it's all theoretical. But it's just fun to think about. There's a lot you could talk about with just this topic. Yeah, maybe, maybe the answer is tramadol. <laughs> oh my gosh we finally found when tramadol oh, opioids and alcohol are always here. yes 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 exactly just just kidding listeners jokes <laughs> jokes not true. as you know none of this is medical advice talk to your doctor we'll call please there okay and the only reason i brought up the gabapentin and opioid oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, question yeah. people are i don't know about you but here in wisconsin gabapentin is now being monitored um, and pregabalin and our prescription oh, drug monitoring. And I know two states, Ohio and Kentucky, actually made it scheduled because so many of their opioid overdose deaths uh, are showing up with gabapentinoids like gabapentin or pregabalin mm. in their blood. Mm. So I know there's animal data that shows it increases the apnea risk. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. You're combining yeah. two studies. But- exactly. Yeah. You know, I kind of, I always fall back on thinking about how we, we talk about you know, benzos by themselves, a big benzo overdose is usually going to be coma with normal vital signs, but then 
throw on something with that, such as a lot of alcohol, then I get a little bit worried about the interactions, perhaps some more respiratory depression, things like that. It's kind of the same thing. I would expect just gabapentin by itself is going to be a little bit more well tolerated. But then if you throw on um, anything else like you know alcohol, opioids, anything, um, I worry that some of the effects could be magnified or compounded together and maybe with a bad situation. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, polypharmacy. Oh, I mean, I can't escape it. Can't escape it. But that's why you want to know your SIP enzymes. That's why we should all get our profiles checked. That's true. That's true. And then we can go to uh, Dr. Joshua Treebox Toxicology Clinic and we can get, get things cleared up. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We'll check your SIP 2D6 today. I'm, I'm in. Sign me up. Um, well, I think unfortunately that's all we have time for i feel like we could keep going for another hour but i this has been an absolute blast thank you so much for joining the show today i know uh and and taking your time out of moving and and fellowship and everything to to make time for this no worries uh is there any do you have any closing arguments any final thoughts you want to share with the listeners any plan Um, no no plane crashes i think uh it's it's a pleasure to be here like i said and i think Toxicology is just so much, so much fun. I think, you know, it could sometimes look a little bit intimidating by thinking about these like big enzymes you have to memorize, or sometimes people will draw an organic chemistry structure and you're like, oh, I don't want to do that again. But I think the, the, the scary stuff is, is, is not, is not so daunting that it should prevent people who are interested from coming into the field. Cause it is, it's quite a lot of fun. There's, we need more of us. There's not a lot of us. We need more of us. And there's, there's always new drugs coming out. There's new pharmacology to explore. So we're always going to constantly be, be needed, be in business. And uh, yeah, don't be afraid to, to call a poison control center near you to set up a rotation today. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's just the nicest people as yeah. evidenced by our guest today. So oh, stop. thank you so much for joining us today. We, it's yeah. been an absolute pleasure. And well, uh, thank you. Wow, Ryan, what a great guest you had on. You two really dove into some fun fish facts. Right. We were really lucky to have Dr. Trebach join the show. What a great guest. And yes, we did cover some fishy topics. You know I know some things about fish myself. Oh, really? You've never shared that with me, Toxo. Like like what? Well, did you know the most hepatotoxic part of the fish is the minnow fin? The minnow fin? How? I didn't know minnow fins were hepatotoxic. Yes, acetaminophen. Wow, robot toxicology dad jokes. <laughs> I think that'll wrap it up today. If you like what you've been listening to, go ahead and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be aware of new episodes. And most importantly, if you really like it, give us a review. It helps us reach other listeners, and we really appreciate it. We had a great guest on today, Dr. Joshua Trebach, and he has a really fun and educational Twitter page. So if you want to do more talks, murder mysteries, go check out his Twitter at jtrebach, T-R-E-B-A-C-H. And you can try to solve some of the puzzles that he has posted if you haven't gotten enough talks already. Don't forget to follow the show on social media. We are at Lab Poison on Twitter. I am at EMPoisonFarmD. And we have an Instagram at Talks underscore Talk, as well as a Facebook page, The Poison Lab. We'll release all of our episodes on those venues to keep you aware. And last but not least, you can always run over to www.thepoisonlab.com for all free medical games, resources, and podcast episodes. Don't forget, we'll be releasing clues for our next toxic mystery 
And if you think you know what is going on, I want you to write into the show so you could take part of the next episode. Our listeners learn the most from hearing other listeners' differentials. All guesses should be sent to TalksTalk1, that's T-O-X-T-A-L-K-1, at gmail.com. Well, thanks for listening today, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope we can catch you next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is fully written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now.